This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out onto a gray, wet September morning here on the Locust Walk, University of Pennsylvania. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner. Morning, gents. Hey, good morning, Cade. Good morning, indeed. Glad to be here with you. We're going to be here for the next two hours. You guys listening can join us. We wish you would. Give us a shout. one 844 wharton That's 1-844-942-7866. Or give us an email, com. We will respond to your email live or during the week if you're listening to one of the replays. Four or five times will be replayed. If it's not 8 to 10 Eastern on Wednesday, it's a replay, and you can still reach out by email. You can reach us on Twitter as well, Active. On Twitter, our handle up there is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. Throw us questions, observations, throw us over-under suggestions for our over-under segment at the end of the show. It's a good way to stay in in touch with the world of sports analytics. We're going to be here for a little bit. We've got guests, as we usually do at the bottom of this hour and the top of the next hour, but between now and then, open lines. Shane Audie. Gentlemen, what's caught your eye? Well, you know, no I shame. Thought, just Eric and Adi. No, just er- Eric and Adi, yes. Um, I'll jump in because I haven't been on the show for a couple weeks. I-, I watched some golf as everyone, I think the country as a whole, watched a lot more golf than they had in a long time. Yeah. And I also, uh, and so I enjoyed uh, Tiger Woods' victory on Sunday. That was, that was uh, uh, surprising. It's interesting. Many people have asked me, what, what, were, what were our thoughts of this a year ago or six months ago? And we actually did have these discussions. And I, I couldn't really remember where I was on it. But I think I probably am a, a big, you know, I, I recognize as a great person coming back from an injury is, is something that is very hard to forecast. So I probably put a, a lot of muddle on the whole thing. Well, I think the question <laughs> is, I think you picked, you, your sentence, Adi, was exactly right. But you picked the appropriate time frame. A year ago... He was basically still chipping in his basement. You know, he wasn't even able to swing a golf club. Now, as the year progressed, when you asked me, if you'd asked me six months ago, I would have said, he looks back in stretches. I mean, there were stretches where it's the old Tiger Woods again. If you'd asked me a month ago, I would have said, of all the players on the tour, I would be shocked if he didn't win again. Because Of all the players. Because, remember, he came in... He was leading the British Open, right. ended up coming in sixth. He shot his lowest ever round in a major in the final round. He shot a 64 at the PGA, got beaten out by Brooks Kepka, who also had a phenomenal round. So, I mean, actually, here's an interesting stat for you. To qualify, the way it works on the PGA Tour is they take your number of points and divide by 25, which is the minimum number of tournaments to determine the world rankings. Tiger Woods, because of injury, didn't start this year at the beginning, meaning this year, meaning a year ago. He only played 18 tournaments, so his divisor is 18. Sorry, it's 25 still, but he earns points for 18. If his divisor was 18, he's the number one player in the world by average points. Not Justin Rose. Tiger Woods is the number one ranked player in the world. Again, 
his divisor, everyone's divisor is a minimum of 25, but is he's it, only played 18 tournaments. Are you also, are there other top golfers who played fewer than 25 tournaments, or, and are you giving them a smaller divisor as I well? I am. This okay. is based on all of their divisors. By the way, okay. it turns out you got a penalty. Here's an interesting stat. You got a penalty for not, like, Tiger's, well, Tiger had an injury thing. Jordan Spieth, you may have heard, did not make it to 25 tournaments because he thought he was going to be in this final tour championship, which would have been his 25th. So he ended up with only 24, and he had to pay some big fine or something like that. And next year, he's been told you must add tournaments. But look, here's the bottom line. Not only is Tiger Woods, based on the terms he played, the number one player in the world, but here's two things to think about. He's never lost a tournament. Never. When uh, leading going leading into, going the, into fi- the final round. Right. I saw that statistic. No, that's not true. Leading by three or more. Three or more in the final he's round. 24 of he's 24 and 24. 24 of 24. He, Here's the, well, but uh, even when he's leading, I think he's almost, he not, it's not 100%, but it's nearly... 42 of 44. 42 of 44. And the average, and this is 40, you got a you, you baseline. I'm going to, for, yeah. for, I, I would have I looked at that and I would have thought, it sounds like the Oakland A's 57 and zero. Sounds terrific, and it is terrific, but you got to know what everybody else does. So he's 42 and 44 when leading into going to the final round. The field average, and remember every tournament has a leader, yeah. is 42%. 42%. Now, that actually is interesting statistics to take apart because the, the usually the person leading into the final round is not going to win the tournament because it's only 42%. But it's, it shows you something how leading into the tournament is probably due more to luck getting someone who's not the best player into the front of the field and therefore is more likely to fall well, back. Well, it also gets something that we've talked about many times. Well, which is not Tiger Woods. No, no, he no. comes in. I, I agree with you, but also it, it tells, shows you a couple things. Remember, you agree with the following. I'm like, it's tautological. There's one leader, and there's a lot of followers. So here's what's happening. The leader's leading, but then you have a bunch of coin flippers below them. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's five coin flippers. Maybe it's ten people that have That's a hundreds. legitimate chance to yeah. win. No, no, but going into oh, the going final into the round, final. Yeah, yeah. There's, let's say there's six to there's ten a bunch players. Of coin, coin flippers. And so, but you're, but let's, even if they're all flipping the coins with the same heads or, or, or tails, yeah. because they all shoot around 69 on average in a round. So no one's coin is that much different than anybody else's. But if you flip eight or ten coins and say, what's the probability one of them is going to have a round good enough to overtake the one player? Well, obviously the answer is about 60% of the time that happens. So this is my theorem in life. Always take the option with more coins. (laughs) Lots of coins is really good. Give yourself an option. One person flipping one coin, ten people flipping coins. What what would you have said the the chances of a... So 100%, by the way, are great, and great is a life philosophy as well. What what would you have said is the chance that the average PGA golfer holds on to a three-stroke lead after three rounds? I mean that's what Tiger had this week. He's never he's never lost that. Right. But I'm asking that you. I don't know the answer. So I, I well, only was reported your, the, the lead. I, I know the answer, so I'm asking oh. for your intuition. Okay, so well let's put it this way. Um it's greater than forty two percent. Yes. Because we know of <laughs> any size lead it's forty two percent. So I'm gonna guess sixty percent. I'll say it's seventy. So it I I I don't have the same forty two percent Audi does on the lead. I have that more like thirty. Um, now this is over a seventeen or eighteen year period. Uh, this is so, since two thousand thirteen. Is the forty two percent number we have since two thousand one? So I have a bigger okay. data set here, and it's more like thirty percent. But the three stroke lead loses more than half the time. So the winning percentage wow. with the three stroke lead is something like you know high forties. With the three stroke lead, right? But I wonder what it would be if we used it to our our controlled data set. Um, but also, but it even makes. 20 that's what I'm saying. It makes it ridiculous. 20, it's, it's ridiculous. This is but, my point because Tiger. I mean, if you look at what Tiger does, what he does with like a one-stroke lead, 
looks like what other golfers do with like a six-stroke lead. I mean, it's just, I he doesn't know. Here's, he doesn't here's the question. So, and this is, I think, is important and it relates to a lot of other things. Does Tiger not lose because he's better or because he doesn't crack? And I think these are two things that really are, are they probably work, they're probably both working at the same time. One of the things that makes a, a, an incredible performer, such an incredible performer, particularly in a, in, in a sport like golf where, where pressure can really get to you at the end, is he seems to be able to hold, this, hold on to this and, and not fall apart. So many golfers, when it's, when it's a one-stroke lead, maybe may because they're just not better than the people behind them, and that's the reason well, why they don't they also, win. But it's also because they potentially can fall apart. But let me just also say, what you're also talking about is you know, related to, well, obviously this is a sports business statistic show. It's also related to what, I, what people would call the endogeneity issue, which is as follows. Imagine you did the following analysis and said, what does Tiger Woods shoot in those rounds versus others? Now here's the problem with that thinking. Tiger shot 71 on Sunday. Tiger didn't need to shoot better than 71 on Sunday. As a matter of fact, he wasn't trying to shoot better than 71 on Sunday. He said this himself. After the first hole, he birdied the first hole. He went to his caddy and said, we're par going all par up. all the way in. <laughs> I'm not saying he's going to get a par in every hole. He goes, we go par now, we win. Right. And so Tiger's like, this is fine. I'm going to play the middle of greens. I'll hit the ball 290 instead of 320. I don't have to he get super have to aggressive. Chances. So I'm saying you when can't you have a lead and you have the skills. Right. You can't look at his final score and say, well, he shot over par. Nah. He, meaningless. Intended totally to. meaningless. And so that's one of the problems. You, I would love to know the stat. It's hard to know. But like when it mattered, what did he shoot and anybody else shot? When it mattered... He was up by five strokes. But do we think that this isn't that this is something that Tiger's able to do? Does he does he not crack under pressure? Yes, okay. he does not. So, th- did you see the article that Matt, our producer, sent around about pressure and darts? I did. This so, is like a rigorous so, so study I saw of this pressure one. and darts. So actually, I saw, this one came across my transom, and I read it pretty carefully. And and it, just to put it into context, I mean, this really speaks to our our notion of momentum. Um, the professional dart players have to be uh, can't crack under pressure because that's all they do all the time. And it's and and the point of the article was that survivor bias predicts that the people who are who perform better under uh, under pressure will become the champions in darts. Why is it that there's always pressure in darts more so than other sports? Uh, it has to do with the way that the, I actually read all the rules. It has to do with the way you win the game. You have to um, there's a certain you have to get exactly zero at the end. The points go down from five hundred, and you get three shots at the end, and then the person has an opportunity to uh, to beat you afterwards. And so it's a particularly tense moment where you have to do exactly the right thing um, almost in every in every almost every round kind of has this high-pressure huh. situation. You can't have a lead that kind of works through. It doesn't work that way. By the huh. way, just speaking about pressure, just last before we leave golf, um, you guys think $7 million is a reasonable amount of money, right? <laughs> sure. Okay. Well, let's, <laughs> not, question? Well, I mean, let's <laughs> not forget in the tournament that just happened, Justin Rose going into the 18th hole knew if he didn't birdie the 18th, he would lose what's called the FedEx Championship for the season. Mm-hmm. First place was worth ten million, which he won. Second place was worth three million. So he so knew he absolutely knew going into the final final hole. He had to birdie. He had to birdie. And by the way, just so you know, for those listeners out there, who do you think for the whole season who would have won if he had not birdied the eighteenth? Tiger Woods. <laughs> Tiger Woods in eighteen tournaments won enough points. He would have won if Justin Rose. So talk not only about pressure. It was a par five. Justin Rose birdied the eighteenth hole to win $7 million. And he said, and he knew it. He was looking at the scoreboard the entire That's great. way. All right, so I would have bet with 
high confidence that the first topic on Eric's mind this morning was Tiger Woods. I'm curious what second. Well, let me say, I was at the Buccaneers game the other night against the Steelers, the Monday night game. You were, that was where? In Tampa. In Tampa. Yeah. You, you also went to the game in Wednesday. Uh, I was also at the you Buccaneers the game, game when the Eagles were at Buccaneers. <laughs> That's what happens when you're a football fan. Sometimes yeah. you go to games. Yeah. Um, even when they're in Florida. Even when they're in Florida. <laughs> even when they're in Florida. Well, apparently, uh, Cade lives in Doylestown. It took him just as long to get from Doylestown <laughs> to here as it did for me to get to Tampa. It's probably true. But um, I didn't realize this. So Ryan Fitzpatrick had an absolutely awful first half. The Bucks were down 30 to 10 at the half. 30 to 10. They lost 30-27, to 27, so they shut out the Steelers in the second half, and the Bucks had the ball with three minutes left with two timeouts and the ball at the 30-25-yard line, so with a chance to win, but that's not what caught my eye. Ryan Fitzpatrick threw for 400 yards for the third straight game. How many times do you think that's been done in NFL history? A guy's thrown for 400 yards in three straight games. Ten times? Yeah. Any guesses? I think that's a reasonable bet, yeah. Uh, zero. What? He's the first quarterback in NFL history to throw for 400 really? yards in three straight games. Wow. So Shows that, my intuition is well, not that, what it, that about caught football. caught my eye. What exactly but, what but I thought let, it let is. Me tell you, well, <laughs> let me tell you the math that I did, and you tell me. Well, here's the math I did to try to get calibrated. Like, why is this so rare? Let's imagine you have a quarterback who plays 16 games for the moment. Let's assume he plays 16 games and throw, has eight 300-yard games and eight 400-yard games. Okay, That gets you to 5,600 yards, which, by the way, would essentially tie the record or break the record for most. So even if you had eight 300-yard games and eight 400-yard games, which would be a phenomenal season, you'd agree to that. Yeah, sure. The chances of getting three 400-yard games in a row there is tiny in a row. Even if I intermingle, I'm just going to randomly distribute those eight 300 and eight 400-yard games. But now imagine you only... You think that's true? Well, that's, you, can, you can simulate. From, did I'm you, not did, you, did a, you do the calculation? I didn't. Or? <laughs> I'm just saying it's not extraordinarily rare. It's not extraordinarily no, rare, but it's not, I, that, it's not as common as you think. I would say it probably happens at least a third of the time. You think so? Okay, well, yeah, we'll simulate it at oh, the oh, break. Here's the problem. Eric gave you eight 400-yard games. Turns out the record for most 400-yard games in a season is what? It's four, and it's only been I done see. twice. Okay. That's, that's the well, real I reason. Well, I was trying to yeah. say even... No, no, but yeah. um, I was trying to even say, let's imagine Tom Brady and Peyton Manning's best season. Right. And you're even saying in those seasons? They so only even including four. those seasons, it may the, not even have been those seasons. Pey- Peyton Manning in 13, and we got to go back to Dan, okay, so, Dan Marino in 84. All right, let me, let me ask you... I want to ask you your football mavens a question, because this really relates to how I understand statistics and football. You take a guy like Fitzpatrick, right? So he's been around the block. 30, he's 35 years old. He's, yeah. he's playing for many teams. He's clearly had what we now know, given the data, three, 400 games in a row, 400-yard games in a row. Extraordinary. Never been done before. More than four 400-yard games in a season is incredible. What do we make of him? So what do we do? How do we take this data and combine it, what we've seen of him for the last well, 15 I, years? I, what I do we predict going forward? That he sits on the bench behind Jameis Winston? No, I think he's going to start this week at the Bears. It will only be a moment. It will only be a matter of time until Winston. Right. Takes I think over. he's going to start at the Bears. The Bucks have a bye week after this, after the Bears game. I think Jameis Winston comes back after the bye week. But let's say the so following. we don't we don't no, believe no. it's legit because otherwise it, you'd start it. I believe, for sure. No? I, no, no. Here's what I believe. Ryan Fitzpatrick has always been. There's a reason he's been in the league for 14 years. It means he's at least an adequate quarterback. He threw the ball. It, it's the league the way it's changed. I'm sitting thinking about the entire Bucks game right now. I don't know how many times the Bucks ran the football, but it wasn't many. Ryan Fitzpatrick threw the more ball. More opportunities than ever, yeah. It's more opportunities than ever. And to, he lost. 
No, I understand he lost so, the game because he threw a pick six in the first half. Right. He threw, the Bucks turned the ball over four times in the second quarter. That's why they lost right. the game. So our friend Josh Hermsmeyer, who now writes for 538 and has been on the show before, terrific analyst, has a nice piece on 538 from, I think, going into this past weekend, comparing Winston to Ryan Fitzpatrick. And he looks at you know as, as big a sample as he can build, given you want as much data as possible to make these. And he looks at some pretty simple things like expected points added, which, which is a pretty accepted, a very accepted measure in football. Uh, per pass play, but this is and over his career. For this Fitzpatrick. is career, yeah. So, and it's and it's not close. Winston's almost twice. Oh well, just I'm just I'm sure you guys know the stats. I think the number's true. I think over his first three seasons for Jameis Winston, I'm pretty sure he has more passing yards than any quarterback in the history of the NFL. There's no, I mean, let's not make, let's not put Jameis Winston into the scrap heap of quarterbacks just yet. I mean, the guy threw for over four thousand yards. I know in his first two seasons, I mean, I, he has more yards in his first three seasons than any quarterback. I'm pretty sure in NFL history. So it doesn't surprise me that if you look at Fitzpatrick's career, mm-hmm. yeah. But I'm asking the question: Is do we think that there's any non-stationarity here? Do we do we recognize? Do we think that Fitzpatrick is better than he ever was in his career, and that there's something worth considering here? I, there's certainly non-stationarity, but it may it may be him or it may not be him. Maybe the t- the team he's with or the offensive play caller, you know, that kind of stuff matters a great deal. Have they figured out how to use him better? Has the game transformed? Is he surrounded by better players? That kind of stuff. So now, if, now if Winston comes back and he has two mediocre games in a row, Tampa wins one, loses one. What are you doing? Well, one and what and are one, you advising? Like- Hermsmeyer has convinced me. And I know he's using the whole thing. I, you give him some non-stationarity, and you're still not going to get there. He looks at this from a number of different angles. He convinces me by digging into the data that odds are Winston's the better quarterback, and you want to ride that for a while before you give up on it. Yeah, so I think what will happen is, I think Fitz, as I said, I think Fitzpatrick is going to start against the Bears. Okay. It's a short week also. You could make the argument mm-hmm. it's a short. it is a short week for the Bucks. And then there's two weeks off, All right, well, and that's when Winston comes back. That's I also my want, prediction. I want to talk about another quarterback. So I watched the Jets game. Thursday night. You should. You're supposed to be a Jets fan. I am. So I actually watched it. Mm-hmm. And um, This was the Mayfield game. This you was, call it the Jets game. It was I the Mayfield game. I called it the Jets game. They were, they were <laughs> winning nicely going into the end of the second half. The whole crowd is screaming, Mayfield, Baker, Mayfield. They bring him the, in. Into the first half. Into the first, end of the first half. Uh, and the crowd is screaming, Baker, Mayfield. They bring him in. Bam! Touchdown. And then the Jets go on to lose. Now, what do you make of this? What, what do you do? What Do you... Do you well, I, I mean, was, here's a guy who's been underrated yep. his entire career going through. Obviously, he was the number one draft pick. They were planning to, sit, to, to bench him for the year, you know, season him a little bit. Um, is it the right thing? to? Is he now the starter? I mean, what do we predict? What, what, what do you think well, of this? So I was, this, this is the way I – so I took notes before the show. I try to prepare. And so um, what, if you – you, What are you, bragging? No, I'm just <laughs> trying to make feel on, bad? I, I wrote – no, I was asking – I refuse fo- to feel bad about this. You should not. I wanted to ask you the following <laughs> question. If, so we have a little bit of data on some quarterbacks. So Mayfield has played. Darnold has certainly played. Allen, Allen has played. played. Allen has played. Rosen played a few snaps. Uh, Lamar Jackson really hasn't played. Hold on. Did you see Allen hurdle that guy? I did. He hurdled a linebacker. I know. It was ridiculous. I, watched, I watched that game. Uh, Jackson has played a tiny bit, but not much a quarterback. Let's imagine the following. If you could redraft right now. Who would you redraft? Who would you redraft <laughs> right this. now? What a great question. <laughs> no, no. So is there any data to say anything? So I'll give you my opinion right now. I'm, I'm becoming, I mean, Bayfield only have a tiny bit of data. The one person we have the most data on is Sam Darnold. Yeah. 
I would be a little nervous if I was a Jet fan right now. Oh, all, really? the, all the interceptions oh, really? he's thrown? Yes. Is that bothering you? It's bothering me. Yeah, it's bothering <laughs> me a little bit. Well, that was one of the knocks on him coming out of college. Correct. With ball security, and that was what hurt him some with SC. But he seemed to be throwing it right into the arms of the defenders. I mean, it, was, it wasn't even... Well, you, know, have, anyway, you may know Mayfield's been announced as not shockingly as yep. the starter for this week coming up. But Tyrod Taylor is possibly still in the concussion protocol anyway, so I don't know that the, he would have started for the Browns anyway. Yeah, um, I'm very interested to see what happens. But also Mayfield, it's not even just that they won the game. I mean, I'm pretty sure he was 17 of 21 for 200 yards in the half. So I mean, 17 right. of 21. I mean, that's. You know, 80%. I mean, if he completes, that's that was the positives always about Baker Mayfield. He's an extra. I remember you talking about it last At year when it was distance, coming up in the was, draft. He's, he's an extraordinarily accurate yeah. quarterback. Mm-hmm. So the historically, I would have shorted a guy who in his first start, not even his first start, his first real action plays that well. We've seen a lot of quarterbacks come in and do well initially, and then the league kind of figures them out, or they just can't hold up to that initial good performance. But Mayfield, I don't know. I mean, Mayfield. By the time he was drafted, there was a there was a lot of talk around the league among smart people who thought that guy had the goods. There was just a lot of confidence in him in having it. And of course, you forget to mention the quarterback who, even though it's his second season, he didn't really play oh, yeah, last sure. season. Who's got the most touchdowns in the NFL history in the first three games is Pat Mahomes yeah, for Kansas City. So, I'm sorry. What did you say? What did you lead with there? Because you know that Mahomes, we had forgotten about him. We well, weren't haven't mentioned well, him. Did, yet. Well, do you, do you know why? Baker Mayfield walked on at Oklahoma because Mahomes beat him out for the job at Texas Tech. That's we transferred. Dave's, those guys, Mahomes and Mayfield, were together at Texas right. Tech. Uh, no, I didn't How know that. How absurd is that? Was no so that I, he, but Mayfield has some strange college kind of. Uh, well, he walked on a tech. He walked won, on won this. One that means start. he wasn't drafted out of high school to a top team, he, or he wasn't what? he wasn't recruited. He, recruited. Wasn't, he wasn't given a scholarship college. to play for Tech. Walked on a tech. Won the job, started as a freshman at Tech, and then Mahomes beat him out, and so he left Tech, walked on to Oklahoma, got a scholarship, won the job. Did he have to skip wa- a year, or did there was some waiver of this for you know, some reason? I, I don't recall. I think he might have been waived. What he, and he definitely was given an extra year of eligibility at the end for some I special see. reason. But look, if we're still, since we've been talking about the NFL, I have a question for Massey of Massey Peabody. Why are ranking systems so bad at predicting... Big underdogs, and let me say why again. So for those of you that don't know, there was a 17-point spread in the NFL this season. Uh, this last this week. Game. This last week. The Bills won that game. Uh, fortunately, I know the statistics on how often greater than 14-point favorites cover the spread. So let's just say there may have been some happy times in my household this weekend. I didn't think the Bills were going to win the game. But there, there's some statistic where I've read recently like it's well over ninety percent of the time that a fifteen or a fourteen and a half or more point underdog covers the spread. Well, so that, my that shouldn't be the case. Well, it is the case. Okay. Matt will put it up on your screen. So here's my question to you: Is there any reason why a system, whether it's Massey Peabody, FPI, whatever it is, would do a poor job in the tales of the distribution? Like it's consistently, uh, well. <laughs> or it, it's the betting line. Too. It just. I'm sure Massey P. Maybe Massey Peabody had the Vikings as a 17 point favorite. Okay, well, let me I, I'll answer that a little bit. I mean, first of all, there are not that much data out there, so that doesn't happen that often. So already looking at relatively small sample sizes. So once that happens, maybe once a season, that, once or twice a season, things get very, at very most. messy. And so you really are not looking at very much data. 
The other problem is a little bit more technical, which I won't get into, but a lot of these models are based on either two two types of general models for fitting these things. One is a probit, one is a logit, and they both stink at the edges. They don't do well with small probabilities. Mm -hmm. So without getting into the details, they're not easily done. So we would have made it, you know, setting aside some nuances, just looking at our power rankings, we would have made it about a 15-point game. Last week, okay. Last week. similar, not too so, far no, away from I mean, the betting we're, line. We're usually with the line. We're highly, highly correlated with the line. But ours is designed. You know, we're we're not we're not transforming the the difference in power rankings before we make a game prediction, right? So we, you you're might, not doing the the, you, tec- the two techniques that I'm describing. Yeah, you you might, but you might need to do something like that if you want to if you want if you think that this it's some nonlinear function of the difference in power rankings because we're just assuming it's all linear everywhere. And what you're that suggesting, Eric, is that whenever the difference in team quality gets quite high, that maybe the difference in game outcome is suppressed in some way. Exactly. For some mm-hmm. Exactly. For some reason. Yeah. And so either way, it was just a fascinating, fascinating week of football for that reason. Well, the fascinating is one word for it. I mean, the other word for it is, you know, it's Random. just a game. Yeah, it happens. Even, one even, in 10,000 happens, it turns out. This is not a one in 10,000. No. No, it's not. Not even close. It's more like a one in 1,000, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, No. What was a 15-point favorite is how many standard deviations in the NFL? Mm-hmm. One and a half? A little bit more than one yeah, and a half? Yeah, one and a half or so. That's right. Why is that so uncommon? But because they won... Well, one, it is uncommon. It hasn't happened since, like, in 23 So basically, years. there's some... This that indicates that the model's not right at the edges. That was my question. Okay. That was I mean, my question to begin but, with. But, but, but also, part of the... Part of the power of the outcome was not just that they won, but they went up 27 nothing yeah. to begin with. I mean, they won by a lot. So you look at the, the, the difference between the actual outcome and the predicted outcome, and it's far yeah, more insane. than one and a half standard deviations. That's actually an interesting way to look at it. It isn't just that, you know, the Bills lost by 14. Yay, we covered the spread. They won by, I think it was 27 to 6 was the final. Yeah, so yeah. there was like a 38-point swing from the actual spread. And that's, I would imagine, Adi, if we looked at the empirical distribution yeah. of outcomes, difference from the spread... That would, unless they're usually get, supposed to be close. I mean, that's would be the argument. In the last few minutes of this segment, what else is on the list? Because I know you had a bunch of stuff going on. We haven't hit baseball. Just we can, haven't we, had baseball. Give me some, I mean, give me some quick headlines. So I'll give you one quick headline. The Yankees are fighting for their home field advantage, mm-hmm. and uh, Eric and I are particularly interested in this race because we have tickets. This is against the A's. This will right? be Correct. against the A's. So and American the Yankees, League, every the playoffs teams settled. are set. The A's are in. They started out with the lowest payroll. payroll. In the league, and they made the playoffs. So just this will be a shout out first to Billy Bean. Yeah, yep. it's the first time that the lowest has the made lowest the has had the incredible. Made the and now, and now they might get home field. And, and it's ridiculous. Pardon me while I pull for the A's. In this <laughs> yeah. Well, well we're don't pull for us. Pull for them later. We would like to watch the game at, at home at Yankee Stadium. At Yankee oh, Stadium. y'all want to go to the game? Yes, and okay. we're not going out to Oakland. So let me say. <laughs> okay, so, by the way, the winner of that plays the Red one Sox. card one game card has to go to Boston. Yeah, it's already locked in. So the Astros won last night. They clinched the division. Yeah, so it's Astros Indians, which are arguably the two smartest teams in the league. Right, and it's quite possible the Indians the two have had a much much weaker schedule and are considered to be a much inferior except, team to the except, Astros. I agree with that. Except, that, um, not that strikeouts necessarily model everything, but they're the first team in MLB history to have four starting pitchers with two hundred strikeouts. Mm-hmm. So as far as I'm not, I'm not. Look, they, how about they have a puncher's chance? No, of course. So they let do. me just say well, what also. Come ca- on, fifty-five percent. Let me also say what also probably the Astro eye. advantage. A big event <laughs> happened in baseball last night. Only 17 players in the history of Major League Baseball have done what's happened last night. A pitcher. Okay? You would think it's a lot more. This is how rare it is. Max Scherzer Mm. reached 300 strikeouts last night. Right. Now, 
only now I'm not saying Ryan has se- about half of those, by the way. Uh, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> oh, it's more than seventeen pitchers. seasons, but okay, there's yeah. seventeen individual, individual pitchers, pitchers that have done it. But that's less than the number of people in the three thousand hit club. It's yeah. less than the number of people in the five hundred home run club. I mean, only seventeen pitchers. It's becoming extremely well, rare. Here, let's right just now. do a little math for a second. Let's imagine you're healthy every game of the season as a pitcher, which is rare already. Let's say you make thirty starts. You have to average 10 strikeouts a start mm-hmm. for 30 starts. Mm-hmm. I'm just using your N times P mm-hmm. math, which you've helped me think about. If N is 30, you better strike out 10 per game. Mm-hmm. And then what's the first the probability that N is going to be 30? You're going to basically start every fifth day and never miss a start. And then and averaging pick, 10 pick, strikeouts. It's a lot of innings to get 10 but strikeouts. Also, but also remember... Most pitchers don't go nine innings anymore. Let's imagine you pitch seven innings. You have to strike out ten in seven innings, so, which is a which is a massive rate. Long, that's, yeah. Wait, that's, let's be clear. Yeah. That's ten strikeouts out of twenty-one outs. Essentially, mm. you're you're basically getting almost half your outs through strikeouts. So who, are, who, are, who are the other pitchers that have hit this number? Well, certainly Ryan has done it. Probably greats like Christian Mathers, uh, Walter Johnson, and Christian Mathers. Well, probably also as well. some recent ones. I believe Chris probably Sale did it. Randy Johnson. Has Randy done it. Johnson. Chris of course, Sale. Yeah. San, how about Sandy Koufax? Sandy Koufax who's got the record. Ways, I think yeah. with three hundred eighty-two in a given season. No, I think I think Ryan may have beaten that by one. Maybe 383. Okay, one of the things but, y'all are saying is the strikeout rate is going up, but the innings pitched is going, going down. And the starts are going down. But I just wanted to comment on I wanted to comment on one thing to show you how great Max Pedro, Scherzer is. Pedro Martinez. Of course, our friend Pedro, Shane would have come Pedro. Just one thing about Max Scherzer. Steve Carlton, local boy. Ah, there we go. <laughs> um, St- uh, Max Scherzer's career record right now is 159 wins and 82 losses. If he goes six and five next season, six and five, not a great season. He has the same career record as Sandy Koufax. Mm-hmm. He's won two straight Cy Youngs. If he wins this year, he'll have won his well, third is, straight Cy Young. And uh, look, him this and Degrom, is a big, this is a big year for for the sabermetricians. No, I know, but I'm going to say his whip. Matt, I, I talked about this the last two weeks on Morton Moneyball. Max Scherzer's whip, walks plus hits per, for innings pitched, is a is the same as Degrom. Actually, as of a week ago, it was better than Degrom's. Yeah. His ERA is worse. Degrom has a one seven seven ERA. Scherzer now has this season has a, well this season I think has a two five ERA. Is my question is is Max Scherzer now a Hall of Famer? Already a Hall of Famer. Already a Hall of Famer. You compare his career numbers to yeah. Sandy Koufax. But you have to remember. There's <laughs> no, a bit no, of, why not? You, you can't do well, that. But Koufax there was, has like, he's like the, his five years were, yeah, were better than, than, than Scherzer's. Although if you try to scale it by the league he's in, I mean, this is, although well, the things are really, the real issue for this year is, is DeGrom going to win it or is Scherzer going to win it? And the problem with DeGrom, he's like eight and nine or nine yeah, and nine. Yeah. He has a ridiculously low ERA. Um, and he's played for a horrible team, which provided no offense. But also, I mean, I was actually, to, the credit to, to Scherzer is he'll, he'll play the whole game if they need him to. And, and DeGrom gets yanked after six innings, seven mm-hmm. innings, and if you don't is finish it, the it, game... Is that different management philosophy, or is that because oh, of the pitcher? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, sometimes they'll go seven or eight. Okay. Um, the Mets have been horrifying, but it's so, an interesting kind con- of so uh, conversation. So on the way out, just a few more of these names. So the, Eric said only 17 in the 17 his, pitchers. 17 have had 300 strikeouts in a season. We gave some of the obvious names. Just some fun last few names. We're not going really old. We're just going to kind of go to our, our youth. Vita Blue. Vita oh, Blue. Early yeah. 70s Mi- in the A's. Mickey Lolich. Uh-huh. Tigers in the probably 1968 it, was Lolich's. As a matter of fact, I just, just quickly I just looked it up. Lolich went 3 and 0 in the 68 World Series. Um, Bob Gibson went 2 and 1 for the losing Cardinals and Tigers wow. playing the 68 World Series. That was Lolich's. Six starts from those two pitchers. Six starts from those two. And then two great Astro pitchers, Mike Scott. 
who had who was in the, at his peak back in the Mets that that yep. era must have been like eighty five or six and somewhere. J.R. Richard, J.R. Ah, Richard, yes. all right. That has been the, the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, eight a.m. to ten a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner. Shane Jensen is out today. He'll be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning talking sports analytics. You can join us. Phone number to do that, 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us if you'd rather reach out that way, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, or catch us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. You can add us up there, questions, comments, whatever you want to do. We are rolling into the second quarter of the show. We have a guest, as we usually do. In this quarter, Dana Cavalier is joining us. Dana spent 12 years with the New York Yankees. Some guys in the studio who... Fond for fond fondness that for that team, yeah. Many of those years with the Yankees, Dana was the director of strength and conditioning and performance enhancement. He won in 2009 the Major League Baseball Nolan Ryan Award, which is given to the MLB's top strength coach, as judged by his peers. And Dana has a new book available, about on pre-sale now, so coming out. Shortly, the name of the book, Habits of a Champion, Nobody Becomes a Champion by Accident. Dana, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Dana, appreciate you taking the time. Where are you calling in from this morning? I am calling in from Connecticut, actually. Stanford, Connecticut. Stanford, Connecticut. So just not too far outside of New York. You haven't wandered too far from the Bronx. No, no, no. I actually just moved here about two weeks ago, so it's hard for us New York guys to cross the border something. Yeah, across the border to Connecticut. Hard for you to say you're living, you're calling from Connecticut. Well, appreciate you taking the time. Listen, we want to hear about the book, but beforehand, we want to hear about your how you got into this business. What? How did you get going on strength and conditioning, and how did you how did you work that career into the Yankees? Yeah, so for me, I, I was just an underperforming uh, college player that realized very early in his collegiate career he wasn't going to make it to the big leagues as a player. So. You know, you know, call an audible and, and change direction. But I actually always had a passion for training for the game and, and training in general. And, uh, you know, I discovered this field and strength and strength and conditioning, and I said, wow, this could be the fastest way to the big leagues. Let me start my internship. I started working with the Yankees, the Pirates, the Blue Jays. And I actually brought a very unique training system, you know, with me where we actually analyzed movements, we analyzed performance, we analyzed everything and created a metric system to be with it. And that is what kind of allowed me to get my uh, my feet wet, and as a 19 year old to push my way into a very uh, you know established system and an organization with the Yankees. So, so Danny, when uh, you say you you analyze everything and develop metrics, like, can you give us an example? What was it that you were analyzing and measuring? So I, I always felt that there was a level of predictability to injury, and it wasn't just well, so and so just happened to get hurt. There were mm-hmm. key performance indicators that would lead to identification of, of what causes injury. So whether it was identifying a leg length differential or identifying that there may be some range of motion limitations that take place within the hips, left side versus right side. Uh, same thing with the arm and shoulders. But I wanted to get all of those metrics and identify any sort of risk factors that may exist and may be a precursor and predispose the athlete to injury. Mm-hmm. Once I had that, I was able to start classifying our players and classifying risk as low, high, or moderate risk. And, and we create programming based on what we've identified rather than just saying, hey, we have upper body today, we have lower body today. It was a much more targeted approach um, based on actual data. Mm-hmm. 
But when you collected this data, did you try to see how well it predicted, or you just basically made models based on physiology and experience? You know what? I, it was what made it unique was it was both. So we started to see very predictable trends in terms of hey, if a guy has uh, let's say limited internal rotation on his right side compared to his left, his predisposition to lower extremity injury and low back pain was way up. If a, a pitcher, for instance, didn't have enough internal shoulder rotation on their throwing side, that right there lifted their predisposition to injury. You know, so it became. Um, somewhat predictable in terms of the trends that we could see and you know it just gave us a very clear targeted direction as to how we can go about correcting some of these um, limitations so you would then then put these these say pitchers for example on a program to try to prevent injury i mean what did what did you do with this information you tried exactly We, we directly applied the information so we got these data points created specific programming based on those data points and we began to correct the information. And we would test and retest and measure every single day to make sure that we were getting these players within predictable norms. Can you give us an example of a player that you that you worked with, pitcher or a position player, that, that was striking to you in the development that you saw or the changes yeah. that you were able to instill? I'll give, you, I'll give you two examples, one position player and one pitcher. So... Freddie Garcia, you guys may remember him. He had a long career with Seattle, uh, Chicago, uh, as well as also the Yankees. And, you know, Freddie, every time he after he would pitch, he would complain of lower back pain. So what we identified is that he had about a half-inch leg length differential between his le- left side and his right side after he pitched. So just from landing on his front side, you're dealing with a player that's about 240, 250. He would actually get jammed up on his front side, oh, wow. and as a result, it would show up as back pain. So he was complaining of back pain, back pain, but it was our system of discovery in terms of assessment and evaluation that was able to target the reason behind it. You're saying so the, we were able- p- the p- pitch in the game, the, the game itself compressed his body so that his leg ended up shorter. Like pitching a whatever, six, seven, eight innings was enough to shorten his leg. Exactly, wow. 150, you know. Throws if you or pitches, including you know his bullpen session. Right, right. Quite a bit of repetitive stress, and repetitive okay. volume. The other, the other position player was Alex Rodriguez. You know, complaining of hip issues that he was having. We were able to actually measure the amount of power output between his left side and his right side. So we were able to identify in his comeback process where where he was in that recovery process and in that rehabilitative process. Mm-hmm. Say hey you know what, he's within range, here's the power output left, power output right, he's even, let's go. Mm-hmm. As opposed to just saying, well, I think he's ready. You know, that guesswork can cost you big time when you're dealing with, you know, human asset value of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. This Can you say just a little bit more about this balance thing? It, it's I, When I talk to sports science people and I ask for details, they're often ending up giving examples of an assessment or an exercise where, they're interested in the symmetry, essentially, in what the athlete is doing. Is How common is that, and is, how important is are those kinds of measurements? Yeah, well, symmetry is extremely important when you're, you know, when you're assessing and you're evaluating, you know, phys, you know, a player's physicality. But there's also something that most people don't talk about. And when you're dealing with an asymmetrical sport like baseball, you're typically a lefty or you're typically a righty, 
and you're going to have these repetitive patterns over and over and over again, your left side is never going to match your right side. Okay. And, you know, you can say that you can get it there or that it will get there, but it won't get there. But it needs to be within a range. You know, if you could be within 5 to 10 degrees one side versus the other, you're good. If you could make sure that there's enough and adequate range of motion, you'll be good. Okay. But that's, that's really where, you know, there, there is a little bit of debate because in an ideal world textbook model, if you're going to try to have left equal right, it'll never happen in baseball unless you're a switch hitter. Um, that, that's when you tend to see a lot more closer values. So, Dana, this is Eric Bradlow. I wanted to ask you, is what's enabled you to do, let's call it advanced sports science now, are the, I'll call it, is the concept of, let's call it symmetry, rotation speed, I would imagine many of those things have been around for a long time. Is it technology and the ability to capture data that has changed your business, or is it that the way we fundamentally think about it has changed? You know what, I think the fundamental belief of it has changed quite a bit. Um, teams, you know are much more into the metrics. But, I mean, I'm telling you, back in 2002, we rolled out this model. So, you know, with the Yankees, we've been way, way ahead of the curve and way ahead of things. We just didn't um, market it and PR it the way maybe um, it, it, it has been lately. But sports science has been around forever. I mean, dating back to just, you know, old, old school Russia, you know, you could find studies <laughs> going on. And, and there's been, you know, advancements in the field of strength and conditioning performance has been going on forever. It's just now it's becoming more of a conversation. And what also is happening is there's professionals within the field that have also found uh, using data and using this information has been a really good way for them to market themselves. And, right. and, and using it as a differentiator between, hey, I'm just a strength coach who gets guys big and strong versus I'm a sports scientist who really digs deep. And, you know, you have to have the gut, you have to have the instincts to go along with the data. If you just use data with no gut, you're in trouble. And if you just use guts and instincts with no data, you're also in trouble. Mm-hmm. You have to find that, that middle ground. And um, you're also dealing with athletes. You know, they're simple-minded. They, they appreciate simplicity. So if you're going to get too complex on them, the chances of you as a coach losing them goes way up. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Dana Cavalier. Dana spent 12 years with the New York Yankees, part of that as the strength coach. He won the 2009 Nolan Ryan Award in Major League Baseball, which is given each year to the top strength coach. He's got a new book coming out, Habits of a Champion. By the way, you can see him on Twitter. His handle on Twitter is at Dana Cavalier, Cavalier, C-A-V-A-L-E-A. Dana, can you talk a little bit about the the need to treat athletes differently? I take this as a big theme from sports science, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, please, but I, it, it, one of the things that we hear people talk about is when you measure athletes that precisely and you follow them as closely as people are following now, you learn that different athletes, even playing the same sport or even playing the same position, might need different regimens. Some guys need more training, some rest than other, others, and so what's come out of this sports science is a, a more highly tailored um customized training program is this right and have you used much of that yeah no absolutely i mean you know every player and every person is unique they all have different injury histories they all come from different backgrounds they all have different amounts of tension in their body and that's why you see every player has a different delivery as a pitcher has a different you know um swing as a hitter everyone's wound differently they have different levels of tension at different parts of their body and some have excessive tension based on injuries and the remodeling process that takes place as a result of injury. So 
point is you got to identify where everybody's at, get a baseline, and see where they fall within comparative norms. And once you have that, then you have to dial them in as an individual player. So if you have somebody that has chronic back pain, they have a history of chronic back pain and lower extremity injuries, you're not going to approach them with a you know high-level anaerobic sprint-based program with high impact. It's just not a smart thing to do. Because, so, Dana, does it, does, it, does it, people have asked me whether that causes trouble in the locker room if some guys are given more rest than other guys or some guys are put on harder training programs than other guys. Because historically it was like, you know, we all grew up in that age when everyone's, you know, running the same wind sprints, doing the same strength circuits. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I think it comes down to really the coach's ability to convey his message to the player and give the player an understanding. I mean, you, we can't forget here, these players, they have to be accountability to themselves as well as the team, but it's an individual sport within a team environment. Because, you know, listen, they're paid based on their performance. So if there is a performance indicator that shows deficit and shows lack, it's your job as a coach and a professional to talk to the player and get them to understand it, but most importantly, relate it to how it affects them both positively and negatively. So if you're a player and you're running 20 pounds heavier and you're having chronic injuries and chronic pain, it's going to cost you a chase. It's going to cost you a Bank of America. And a player doesn't want that because they know they have a set amount of time that they can earn and they want to earn as much as possible. So I always felt getting in the trenches and being real with these guys was super, super important. And it gave them a really good understanding as to why we do what we do, why their prescription is what it is. And if you can just relate to a guy and be a good, um, you know, messenger, you know, really it, appreciate that. It's interesting to hear you say that, Dana. That's a big theme among our analysts. You know, our our data analysts, data science people, is the importance of communication, the importance of relationship with yep. the people you're communicating with, and you're basically saying the same thing as a strength and conditioning coach. Absolutely, what, I mean, we're with these guys a lot. You know, <laughs> we're with hitters and pitchers and the coaching staff, so we got to be able to communicate messaging really well. Well, you know, in 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 college football, people talk about the strength and conditioning coach being maybe the most important staff member, you know, in the building because they spend so much time with them. And coaches Absolutely. are restricted on how much time they can spend on. Them. Well, tell Absolutely. me about this. That I'm going to ask you something that that um. You it may I may be asking you to, to do something that's uh, SNC guys wouldn't want you to do. The SNC guys usually report to the coach, at least in football. I'm changing sports a little bit, so it may be a little bit different in baseball. Whereas the training team usually reports to the personnel guys, GM or whatever. So there's this division. They're in kind of there's this the siloed out strength and conditioning from the from the trainers, and that seems so wrong and. And it feels like the more advanced clubs, you know, you go to European soccer or whatever, and these guys are more integrated. Can you yeah. talk about the pros and cons of having a strength and conditioning program separate from the trainers and reporting to the coaches, you know, so it's a very different hierarchy? Yeah, you know, I, I can't really see the value in that personally because, you know, we we created, you know, Steve Donahue uh, and Gene Monahan, those were our two trainers. Those guys were like mentors to me. And, and uh, you know, right off the bat, we had a very integrated model, and we stood by that. And, and I had a direct report to the GM as the strength coach, to Brian Cashman, and so did they. But we would collaborate and have meetings together because okay. you know, they're identifying you know what rehab protocols we need to put in place, and I'm assisting them in putting those rehab protocols on field in place. So without that direct link and that integration, something and somebody is going to suffer as a result of the miscommunication that's 
definitely going to happen. Just this, you know, within sports, you've got 25 to 40 players. There's, there's so many moving parts, and everybody's dealing with something different minute to minute, hour to hour. You know, you foul a ball off your foot, your programs are now changing, you know, because mm-hmm. you're going to swell overnight, you're going to have chronic pain for the next few days. You know, so we have to be on top of those things, and the only way you can do that is with an integrated front. And, you know, ego sometimes gets in the way of why groups don't integrate or, you know, um, you know, sometimes strength and conditioning coaches may feel that, hey, the head coach is my rabbi. Yeah. I gotta stay I gotta stay by him yeah. and I gotta stay with him because if he moves jobs I'm gonna go with him. And they value that relationship more so than, than having loyalty to the entire you know, integrated organization. Interesting. So, Dana, this is Eric Bradlow again. I want to ask you a question. Whether this is done now or will be done in the future, do you ever see a time where a Brian Cashman goes to someone that was in your position and says, we're thinking of trading for this player, but we're not going to do it until you take all these measurements on the player and you know what? We're not going to do it because all of this data you're collecting is going to be predictive of their health, maybe their long-term performance. Is Have we gotten to the level where the kind of data science you're doing is being used by GMs for trades and player evaluation? Yeah, so you know what? I actually brought that up years ago. And, um, you know, it was not warmly greeted. It was warmly accepted, but it was saying, hey, you know what? The agents won't allow it. The agents and the players' union will not allow that to happen. <laughs> And and that's that that kind of nixed it and gave it to Kabash because I said you know much like the NFL has a combine every year, what if we were able to have whether it's a free agent combine or we were able to have a combine, you know for um, you know draft picks, so we can take a full look at, at what's going on with them physically, we can cross compare to their injury history, and then we can really identify again these risk factors high, moderate, and low, and we make our decision based on all those factors. Just right now. If you're not taking a deep dive and looking at the things that we're talking about regarding to sports science, you're still making incomplete judgments and decisions, and there's huge risk in doing that, especially, again, when the asset value of the player keeps going up. That creates more risk for the organization. But this is, this is, I mean, this is a really tough issue because as we develop the technology to know more and more about a player and attract more and more detail about the player – that information can be used. I mean, it's his information. It's his personal physiology, but it can be used either to help him or it could be used against him. And exactly. I mean, I, I think we're in a world where we may have to settle for second best. And the first best, we the information is all available and we can kind of trust everyone to do the right thing. But that may not be a realistic world. Well, and so I'm, I would flip it around and ask, could we create a system where the strength and conditioning coach, for example, has access to all the data? Because he's going to use the code, that data to improve the player. While, and, but he has to kind of build a firewall to the personnel guys because they don't want, they don't want the, the team to make a decision that hurts the player based on information basically the player provided. Yeah, so I just, you know, I have years and years of player data from all the players that have come through our organization, both in the minor leagues and the major leagues. So I think where you can actually use the data without, um, you know, let's say anybody really like knowing or, or outside of those within your organization where you can use it for decision-making purposes is I can give my GM year-over-year year data on a player's numbers and say, hey, listen, here's where I measured him, you know, back in 13, here's where he is in 15, and here's where he is in 17. You can see that we're starting to see some really classic signs of decline. I'm just giving this to you. 
you know, obviously we have to look at his performance and we have to look at those metrics as well. But here's my information and here, here's my data. Now you have a complete story that you could use to cross compare. You know, so we can use it from that standpoint. It's just hard to use it from, um, you know, like to get that information from players from other organizations. And don't forget, there's also, you know, testing norms that you have to be aware of. If I test somebody, you know, there's, I need to be, I'm accurate within my system, but somebody else may not be as accurate or they may test slightly different. Right. So there is still some of that, um, you know, subjectivity. So Dana, maybe a 15 second question because we just have a minute minute left. Do you ever see a day where technology enables what I call a passive measurement system where just through technology, video cameras, etc., I'll make it up 80% of the data you collect can be collected just by passive measurement and so it can, can, that data just exists? Yeah, I think you're, you're going to see that as it relates to on-field play first. So you're going to be able to use cameras to identify how quick is somebody to the left versus their right, and are they slowing down with their on-field play. I think you're going to be able to use camera systems to really see that first, and then I think that may open the gate and open the doors for more, um, you know, a, a deeper dive in-house. But I think it's going to start on-field first through Got scouting it. and, and the Got it. Makes sense. Listen, yeah. Dana, we, we have to hop, but we appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Um, wish you the best with the book and with your work. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. You bet. That was Dana Cavalier, a longtime New York Yank, New York me- member of the New York Yankees and head of their strength and conditioning program. He's got a new book coming out, Habits of a Champion. Nobody becomes a champion by accident. You can find the book. It's on pre-order now. You can also find him on Twitter at Dana Cavalier. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Eric Bradlow. We just lost Audie Weiner. Had to go teach. Shane is out and about. But Eric and I will be here for the next hour just off the phone with New York Yankees strength and conditioning coach Dana Cavalier. We In this next half hour, we have another guest. Delighted to welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show, Stephen Godfrey. Stephen is senior reporter at SB Nation based in Nashville. He's also co-host of one of the very best college football podcasts you could look for podcast ain't played nobody can highly recommend that work they do that he does that with bill conley you can follow steven on twitter at 38 godfrey at 38 godfrey is his handle steven welcome back to the show always so intimidating you literally had a host go teach this morning (laughs) yeah what do you know the normal radio environment i operate in somebody with a cowboy hat and a bullhorn yeah even about the fifth caller but you're so much cooler than we are steven you know you got that Uh, going for you <laughs> and you write better than we do. I mean, you got some things. You got some things. Are you? A, as we say on the podcast, it is a it is a marriage of numbers and words. Yeah, we're trying we're trying to split the difference. Well, you guys are you guys do a great a great job with that. And one of the one of the things that we always like to hear from you is how can we do better as analysts? You you've been you know working as much as closely as you do with Bill. You're seeing the analytics world evolve right in front of you. Are, are, are there aspects of it that you're impressed with? Are there aspects of it that you're still frustrated by? Are there recommendations you'd give to analysts like ourselves if, to be more effective? 
You know what? Maybe this is a curveball for you guys, but I think you guys need to push back because um, one of the trends that we've seen this season in college football is a, a really, even earlier than usual, a demand for a referendum. Um, and and it's, it's mainly been on new coaches, a lot of first-year coaches at major programs like the, the two Florida schools and, you know, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, that, those two the most, I think, where people are trying to draw conclusions based off of one or two weeks, or yep. Texas A&M and Jimbo Fisher, same thing, yep. uh, but for a more positive reason. And I think what happens in the analytics community is that you're pressed and you're pressed and you're pressed, and I think it's a politeness, honestly, <laughs> from most statisticians and analysts I know. Uh, I'm okay with going on and doing 10, 15 markets of radio every week and saying, hey, guys, we don't know. Mm. I'm comfortable telling you that because I talk to coaches and they say privately, of course, we don't know. Yeah. We just don't have a complete set of information. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, we've decided that everybody wants to bluff now. Everybody wants to act like they have a particular number, a particular piece of insight, when in reality, our particular sport, and I'm curious how this would translate into something like baseball, where you start really, where you start really drawing a conclusion, is it 50 games in, is it 60 games in? I don't know. Yeah, we, um, we we talk about that a lot. In fact, it's one of the most fun games to play early in the baseball season. Like what, one month in, you played you know whatever twenty games. What do you really know? But that's I yeah. think that's a that's a really good point. I mean, we 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 say you know, no one's impressed with uncertainty except statisticians, right? So it, you, it's hard to get people excited or to make a dent in the conversation if the main message is we don't know. But we we need to say it more. We have to. We need to remind people more that we just don't know. And you're talking about coaches, which is you know, important and personal. It also comes up with, with what's going to happen down the road, like in the playoffs. Early on, it feels like it's inevitable that it's going to be Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, Ohio State. And you have to remind people, you know, there are a lot of teams and a lot of games to play. And it turns out when you have a lot of teams and a lot of games to play, a lot of things can happen. So I think, I think it's a great message. We do need to always kind of figure out better. Make, how do we make I don't know more compelling? How do we make uncertainty right. more compelling? Actually, that's, well, I'd push that back on you, Steve. It's like, can you, as the writer, help us, you know, make that more compelling? How can we write about uncertainty in a way that people will actually listen to it? I think it's situational. I mean, if you're talking about a college football playoff, I think it's, you know, I don't, a lot of people say, who's your playoff for? I say, well, like right now I've got about a playoff nine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think drawing, create, creating larger pools of candidates in particular instances, um, I, I think bringing more teams into a conversation when you're talking about that, um, you know, as far as hypotheticals are fun, usually in the mainstream media. I mean, and, and analysts are very good at drawing out hypotheticals or what you guys think are, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with X. Let's find three to four or five particular avenues that you could take here. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. let's talk about those instead. Mm-hmm. Um, just that alone, where everyone seeks absolute certainty, yeah. you know, in mid September, maybe trying to gently guide them and say, well, hey, look, there's, there's, here's a possible set of outcomes. Fantastic. Yeah, Stephen, uh, this is Eric Bradlow. Um, I just wrote down, based on your comment, I wrote down four different ways someone could represent uncertainty. I'm just interested in your thoughts about which one might be more, let's call it, palatable <laughs> by the fans. So here's one. One is okay. the team is favored by X, you know, seven points, six points. Another is here's their odds to win. Another is, you know, well, this team is in this group of teams with, like, you know, Michigan, Stanford, whatever. They're in this group of teams. Or another way is yeah. 
they're in the 93rd percentile of all good teams. Does any of those, because you could represent all of those are sort of equivalent in some way. Do any of those strike you as ones that would be convincing with the fan base? Like, which do you like? You know, I'm an eight-point favorite. I'm a 72% chance. You know, this team's really in a bunch of about 15 teams, and here they are. Or, you know what, this team's better than 94% of the FBS teams. How how do you like it represented? The the casual ear is going to pick up on that last one. Like, because wh- how, how good is 93% sound, right? It sounds great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's just like if there's a, well, there's only a 20% chance of rain, so it's not going to rain, is it? Mm-hmm. Well, if we're in the 93rd percentile, that means that we're we're going to win every game, right? So there's inherent bias in the way that we perceive numbers that y'all deliver to us. I personally, I love the grouping because yeah. comparative analytics, I think it, it, it's, it's a little bit safer. Now, one thing that we are horrible about is transitive wins. <laughs> it's a fun game to play. Like, I can get you from Texas to Buffalo pretty fast right now. Right, but right. it's fun. But that's one of the things that coaches, especially more so in the NFL, but also in college, really guard against. You know, you look at, well, this team is so flat, right? I just want to know, are you a groupie of Cade Massey? Why did you pick Texas and Buffalo, which are the two places besides <laughs> Philadelphia that he's lived? Why did you pick those? Um, honestly, because right now that Buffalo, Temple, Maryland, Texas is yeah, the most exactly. transitive win. Now, I'm, I fully anticipate another tree like that emerging in the season, but that's the one that you've, you've been, you could have the most fun with. You guys can get to Villanova. Buffalo's not bad this year. That's pretty good, Massey. Incredible. Well, yeah, and Temple, yeah. Temple's apparently pretty good. They've been doing okay. Um, that, good the, the grouping thing you guys both mentioned is one of my favorite things. Whenever I give someone like, you know, let's pick a team and say they're, you know, they're the 25th best offense in the country, and then I give who's 24 and 26 to give them some context. So, for example, I have a bunch of family that's, that's Texas Tech people, and they finally cracked our thirty top thirty five. Massey Peabody top thirty five. I don't think this has ever happened, in the, at least in the ten years we've been doing it. So they're, they're sitting at number thirty four, which sounds great in, until you say, well, you know, thirty three is Boston College and thirty five is Utah, and then you're a little bit yeah. less excited about it. Yeah, well, and Texas Tech, that's such a strange place to draw context with. That's a very unique program. I it mean, is, I right. tell people all the time they have a great defensive coordinator, and then they they scream at me about six hundred and eighty total yards allowed, <laughs> and I say, well, I mean, that's a little bit more indicative of the style you play and the place that you play it in. And, totally. You know, they, 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 there's great defensive minds that can only do so much. Right, 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 right. I think was was your your buddy Bill Conley was talking about home field advantage and his preference for it's not so much um, calculating, you know, who, which is the toughest stadium to play in, but who are the most unique environments because when they travel there, they have to go a long way. So Hawaii, for example, big swings when they're home or away. And he mentioned yeah. Lubbock and Texas Tech because it's kind of in the middle of nowhere and it's such a different environment. I was there two weeks ago, and it reminds me, you know, I like, I mean, you know, I'm from the South and from remote places, and I'm not trying to disparage it, but, you know, it is very wide open. And, oh, yeah. And uh, what's the, I'm trying to think of really nice words right now. It's sparse. <laughs> it's sparse. I mean, we we joked about it when I was in college and called it Mars because I went there for a non-conference game when I was a student at Ole Miss, but it's, um, you know, it, it's got a it's got a feeling to it. And I think unique in any way, shape, or form is yeah. what gives coaches anxiety, even positively. I think if, huh. you know, coaches, I've, I've been told repeatedly that coaches who have a majority roster that's never been in an NFL stadium and they go play one of these neutral site games, they'll do everything they can to simulate the environment locally or find a place just for a walkthrough. Huh. So they don't have that first quarter, right. uh, you know, call it jitters, but really it's just sort of an awestruck feeling. Right. Right. That doesn't tend to happen, right? Because 
kids who play at Alabama and Florida State and Texas have grown up playing like high school championships in major facilities. Right. But that's kind of it's not the best example because it's going away. But any variance in the process on travel, coaches are going to look for anything that's different from an established pattern to blame for a problem. Mm-hmm. Always, mm-hmm. always. So we're talking to Stephen Godfrey. Stephen is an SB Nation senior reporter. He's also the co-host of a great college football podcast called Podcast Ain't Played Nobody. And you can find him on Twitter at 38Godfrey. You just mentioned Mississippi. I think we are obligated by contract when we're interviewing you to ask you some Mississippi-related question. Is that right? Oh, boy. Great. Um, no, this is, this is about a football team down there as opposed to the shenanigans. Mississippi State. A lot of um, optimism about that club coming in, stacked roster, um, new coach that people are excited about. Do you have a perspective on what's going on with those guys? A, a small sample, like you said, small sample. Maybe we shouldn't overreact, but um, a little surprising what happened last weekend. Uh, the rushing totals, and I don't have the number in front of me, but I think it was something like 71 or 81 total yards. I mm-hmm. mean, they were knocked off balance, and, and I, I talked to some people in Kentucky this week casually about some other stuff, and I just said, hey, what was going on there? Uh, Bob Shoup has an established pattern. That's a defense coordinator. He's been at Tennessee now. He's been at Penn State, and he's been at Vanderbilt. So they, they had an awareness of him and his tendencies. Um, and they felt strong enough about their offensive line. I think this is, uh, just as I start to do my spiel, it's, it's situational, right? It's just about that particular matchup. I'm really curious. Really, this really. week is going to be extremely hard to prognosticate because of all the heightened emotion around Dan Mullen coming back to Starkville. On uh-huh. the whole, I think Joe Moorhead's doing a wonderful job. He inherited a quarterback that, you know, Moorhead would disagree with me, and I really like the guy a lot. I, I would say he, he isn't fit for his system. Moorhead would push back and say, hey, we're going to fit the talent to the system. Or, or we're, sorry, we're going to fit the system to the talent always. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to be one of those guys who's obstinate. He wants, to, he wants to take his knowledge and help benefit whoever it is he has on his roster. But bottom line is they have a quarterback. They, they have a defense who – it's extremely good, top of the SEC. They just don't have a quarterback that provides them the kind of balance that they got at Penn State with McSorley and, and mm-hmm. Barkley. I mean, mm-hmm. that that pairing, believe it or not, didn't get enough attention, in mm-hmm. my opinion, in terms of what they could do structurally, in terms of play calling. You go back and look at the Michigan game and most of that Ohio State game last year, you saw them against elite talent, and, and it, it's an embarrassing thing. It's the way Kyle Shanahan runs his offense in the NFL, where – You'll find guys wide open, right? And right. it's just it, it's it's a five <laughs> six play combination. Yeah, of thinking like like a chess player, and then leaving one guy open because of what you did four plays mm-hmm. prior. Mm-hmm. And when Moorhead can't establish that balance, it not only affects say the run game in this instance because that's what Kentucky sold out to do, but it also affects their ability to spread out the passing game and create those matchups where you're overcompensating for X and you leave Y open. Stephen, how well can we see that ability in these coaches? I feel like there's always some coach that's doing well and people start praising him. And then often when they change situations, it turns out, you know, it's hard to replicate that success and we're so quick to jump ship. You know, so Tom Herman was the hottest coach in football a couple years ago. Texas lands him. And then after a couple of questionable performances to start the season this year, his second people start wondering, has, is, were we wrong about Herman? Lincoln Riley now. Everyone loves Lincoln Riley. Morehead. So, it's how well do you think we actually know which of these guys are true geniuses and which of these guys just happen to have a good season? And if you put them in another position, they might not be able to replicate it. Well, we don't we don't tolerate three and four year evaluations. You know, we tolerate we tolerate quick referendums, and 
one of the things that we're guilty of on my side of the fence and just the pure media world is that these these coaches, especially when they're rising up the ranks, you know, they do a really good job of politicking. They do a really good job of PR. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, in Tom's case, look, he's a group of five school, and he beat Florida State and Oklahoma back-to-back. <laughs> right. To close and open a season. I don't know if you can get much more hype, uh, which is a word I don't like, but, I mean, the, the PR that he pulled from that, I was there when they beat Oklahoma. I mean, mm-hmm. it was... And they beat at them. That and they moment, beat those guys. Coach, he he might have could have he probably could have got a job with Cowboys at that point. <laughs> I mean, it was just he had right. astronomical Q rating. Now, what what you didn't know at the time was how does how does that momentum based team psychology, which is really what he preaches and practices, how does that apply to somewhere like Texas? Um, a, he had a quote. Uh, Feldman got a quote from him this week, and basically said the problem right now that we could tell in the time that he's been at Texas is the highs were too high and the lows were too low. That's a little bit ironic because that's how he created life at Houston. That's mm-hmm. how they were able to emerge and, and stand out. You don't have to stand out at Texas, right? Mm-hmm. You're automatically being evaluated and being noticed, positive or negative. So he's got to smooth that out. I mean, we talk about it all the time on the podcast. Schematically, he's a great coach. He's a hell of a recruiter. Um, this, this may be, fall away from the numbers side, but he's got to manage, he's got to manage that – that disposition in the locker room and not just be an underdog head coach. Cause mm-hmm. you can't, you can't pull that shtick at Texas. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work. Mm-hmm. So, um, the, the big games this weekend do not involve underdogs. These are like big names. Um, mm-hmm. curious, this is a, a weekend where it feels like we have a game that you know, can really shift the, the playoff race, the conversation. Everyone, you know, has been talking about Ohio state kind of from the beginning of the year for good reasons or bad. And now they're going into Penn state. Uh, without Moorhead, without Barkley, but they've still got their quarterback. What do you? What? What's your position on the game? What do you, how do you feel like this is going to go down? Um, I think this is a little bit more interesting to me than some of the other matchups because I have a harder time getting a read on it. Um, mm-hmm. Brent Pry's defense looked horrible against App State. We, we definitely build in a week one adjustment. I mean, a lot of a lot of particularly poor performances you see by one side of the ball by major programs in week one. We mm-hmm. tend to write those off, give yeah. them the benefit of the doubt. Yep. Um, they've looked better since. They have not looked like they did uh, a year and two years prior. So that going into what Ohio State was able to do against TCU late in that game, I don't know if you're going to find a better uh, strategist than Gary Patterson on on working out the problems that Ohio State presents. They just did not have the personnel. Right. Penn State has a little bit more of the personnel, but I don't know if they have enough. I don't know. I don't know if they have enough to go four quarters. And, and in other words, they're just going to wear you down. That's kind of. I mean, TCU did a lot of really smart stuff. They put a lot of stuff on film that other Big Ten coaches appreciate because it gave right. Ohio State right. some serious problems. Right. Um, to Ohio what? State is just. They're just ridiculously talented right now, and on offense they don't slow down. So no. I, I would give them the edge if I was picking a team right now. Okay. Is you know in college quarterbacks can carry teams more so certainly than the NFL. Um, and and we see these transcendent performances, and we see guys who kind of seem to have, and we're analysts around here, we kind of short this moxie kind of winner thing, but we right. see guys in college football who seem to have that. You know, May, Mayfield clearly was one of those guys, at least looked that way last year. McSorley seems like that guy. We've seen him take uh-huh. them down the field multiple times over multiple years and score like the you know the game-winning touchdown late in the game. He's, he's got that in spades. I mean, he looks like that. Do you buy that? And how much difference does it make when you're a little bit outmanned against a team like Ohio State? Well, I think it, I mean, it's a lot. 
it matters a lot because it's just it, we talk about playmaking or moxie or intangibles, and really, I think I think when you get the essence of that and strip it down to its parts, it's really the ability to make particular throws in high stress situations mm-hmm. and make quick reads. I think that's what we define moxie as. Now, there's a lot okay. of stuff that we we can't measure, we can't analyze. That it goes, it, it, it's player dynamics, personal, emotional, all that kind of stuff. But I, I think that's where, as we use that cliche a lot. And it's a bad habit in the media, but I think we're getting down to: is, Are there individual playmaking moments, particularly hard throws? Is he, is he making sight and line adjustments very quickly? And is he rattled at all on the simpler throws in a hostile environment? So, to that end, McSorley has it completely. Mm-hmm. And you haven't seen the Ohio State offense challenged in quite the same way. Mm-hmm. So, so that's that's why you play the game. Yeah, so Stephen, this is Eric Bradlow. So the one of the thing one team I've been following this year that I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on, which is, you know, the one kind of outlier right now in the top 25 for me is LSU. They're, you know, they're obviously had a very good season so far. I'm looking at yeah. their schedule and I'm looking at their next 5 games. Ole Miss at Florida, mm-hmm. Georgia, Mississippi State, and Alabama. And I'm yeah. thinking this is like the gauntlet of death here. It's amazing. I mean, it's an amazing Five game schedule. To me, if they go four and one, you know this team should be a serious contender for right. you know for the playoffs. So let me ask you a question: Do you think we're at a position where we'll get multiple SEC teams in the playoffs? And what do you think of LSU? I do think we'll get multiple teams in the SEC playoff. I don't think you'll get multiple teams from the West. And so I definitely think this is a an interesting conversation. It's a program I know a lot about. I'm very fil- affiliated with, but. Um, uh, in no way, shape, or form do I think you can pull two out of the West, um, especially with what Alabama, what Alabama is going to do to them. Now, <laughs> every conversation we can have, you inevitably come to Alabama, and it just sort of flattens out any kind of fun or any kind of hypothesis yeah. because it's just there's such a ruthless certainty. LSU is fascinating <laughs> right now, though. Um, this is a team that you know, in, in a lot of coaching circles and media circles, there's been a huge. Uh, off-the-record battle between their former OC, Matt Canada, and their current head coach, Ed Orgeron. Uh, and, and they're really fighting a PR war with a lot of media members right now over who was at fault last year, what happened in that game against Troy. The funny thing that got lost in all that was, you know, LSU made that hire because they were trying to replicate the Clemson model of going out and hiring seven-figure high-profile assistants, specifically coordinators, that could sort of buoy the excitement where, you know, Davos Sweeney, oh, he's just a game manager. He's very much more than that. But Ed Orgeron, because of the stigma attached to him, wanted to go out and find guys that were stars in their own right as coordinators in collegiate level. That can bite you back, and it did. Uh, He didn't get along with Canada. Canada did not get along with him. The funny thing is this. The guy that they had calling the plays during the interim year was not a bad, like, O.C. Mm -hmm. Insbinger, the current O.C., the guy they went back to, did a lot of really smart stuff hmm. with about a week to prepare. I was in uh, Baton Rouge for Orgeron's first game as interim head coach against Missouri. And, you know, it wasn't a good Missouri team, but you could immediately see the concepts that they were applying to Les Miles' very, very, let's say, Luddite <laughs> pro style. Uh, and they were able to stretch the field both in terms of width and length. They were passing to set up the run. That's a concept that just didn't exist in Baton Rouge for 20 years. Right. And so Inzinger gets it. They want to stay big and they want to stay athletic. These are all cliche terms. What that means is they can recruit at LSU a, a, a particular kind of four- and five-star, large-bodied, heavily physical uh, player. Not a lot of places in the country can. Like, you can't do that at Texas Tech. You can't do that at 
you know, a lot of the Pac-12 schools in the North. They can do that. They can get an elite athlete. So, therefore, they don't want to gimmick out as, as much as some other teams would. Oh, but they do want to incorporate they, – they really want that NFL model where you see zone read, you see spread, you see concepts that are allowing for working in space and creating matchups, which used to be just heresy in the league, you know, even up to five years ago. That's what LSU wants, and Insminger gets that. And also, I think he understands his head coach. So – they got a functional quarterback in Joe Burrow, which is like a minor miracle at LSU yeah, to have a functional totally. competitive quarterback. But just your point you, is that if they, even if they run the table except for losing to Alabama, obviously they're not in the SEC title game. They'll mm-hmm. have lost to the big dog Alabama, and therefore they're not going to the playoffs. Is that your view? I think you go to the playoffs if you beat Alabama. I mean, he, they no, I'm saying let's suppose they lose yeah. to Alabama but win yeah. every other game. Uh, what does Georgia do? They, well, they will have beaten Georgia. If, if no. that's the case, yeah, but the, so the, yeah, they're you're playing giving Georgia. Us, you're giving uh, us good context on, one, but a one-loss Georgia goes and beats Alabama in the SEC title. Then I think you get Alabama and Georgia in. Yeah, it's going to be tough. Plus, it's going to be real tough for LSU. As good as they are looking, and and perhaps better than some teams, some people thought they would be. It's going to be tough for them to run the table. Shy, even shy Alabama. At least they're both but, at home. Both games are at home. Well, they have a three-game stretch there. They have Alabama, Mississippi, Mississippi State, and Georgia all at home. And my in-laws would love you. Because they're all LSU fans, um, <laughs> I think we may be a little bit ahead on this. No. What they, what, the proof of concept that they've shown so far, it's completely changed the dynamic with the booster culture down there. I mean, they they were getting ready to fire this guy, like, right? Literally four weeks ago, right? Well, how how do how does what is life like in the SEC West? I don't understand how these guys get up year after year, whenever their competition is not only Saban but Auburn is reliably uh-huh. strong. Now now Mississippi State's grown into a real program with with an exciting coach. A and M just spent ten million dollars on a coach. I mean, how other than Ole Miss, which is in trouble, and Arkansas, which is entirely falling off a cliff, you've got five teams who like to think that they can compete for the playoff and probably could, but they have to go right. through each other. I mean, what's it like? Like you said, you've got family down there. What's it like to live in that world? Uh, it's, you know, it's the number one sport in the world year-round in their world. You know, there's nothing that even comes close. They, they, so they, they amplify all the emotion. They eliminate any kind of context or perspective when they talk about it. It's why you get some of the dumber, more bullish comments, you know, in off-season radio talk about it's, it. It frustrates me because I cover the entirety of the sport where I want to say, hey, look, look at the contribution in something that's unique like Boise State, and SEC fans usually want to shut that out. The problem is this. It's what you just said. There's probably five or six teams there that could go in and compete for every conference title in America right now. Any one of the teams that you just named would win the Big Ten West in a walk. Oh, yeah. You know, it wouldn't mm-hmm. even be close. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the way that coaches live with it is that up until last year, when Bielema and Freeze were out, there was a period of three, three I want to say four full years, where every single coach in the SEC West averaged a base salary of $4.5 million a year. Mm-hmm. That's how you live with it. <laughs> you get paid a lot of money to go 6 and 6. But in, in each year, you're just a little bit delusional. So, you know, the yeah, Aggies are... Be, unless you're Alabama. You I know, except for those guys. I mean, I mean, the what the Aggies believe is going to happen with Jimbo Fisher, I mean... I mean, it would be it would be amazing for that to happen in that program. So you're, you're reminding us that come on, we have to look beyond Ohio State and uh, and the SEC West. Give us in the last five minutes, give us some teams or stories or players from around the league, a little bit off the radar that have your attention right now that you think the rest of us should be paying attention to. Uh, you know, it, we do this once a year, but I'm, I'm, well, let's find out what Stanford's going to do. 
You know, do, do you believe something where could you believe that 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 overtime touchdown that big tight end made? I mean, was that no. just not ridiculous? That was like a high school I mean, kid playing with elementary school kids. I mean, Stanford Stanford tight ends are a special breed. I'm a Falcons fan, and and I think one of the secrets to that offense has always been they've had a Stanford tight end now going on I think six years after <laughs> Gonzalez was out. I mean, yeah. I'm a big believer in the Stanford uh, tight end. That's great. That's great. Um, so they're in a position where I I, I had them ID'd early as an imposter, so to speak, again, small, small sample set, where they actually didn't look that great against San Diego State. And if you watched the USC game, they were not really sustaining drives. Okay. The USC had kind of solved Bryce Love through like the bulk of the second, third, and early fourth quarter. It just didn't take much at all for Stanford to win that game because USC's offense was non-existent. Then, so I had, a, I'm sitting there scoreboard checking the Oregon game, watching something else before we flipped over, and... I think, all right, okay, I knew we knew what Stanford was. We knew it's oh, wow. Yeah. And so yeah, right. there was a cohesiveness in that comeback that is less about Jim Levitt's Oregon defense still being fundamentally bad in pressure situations and third downs. But I, I now am – we've got to give Stanford the benefit of the doubt as they wow. go into that wow. Washington game. Wow. Um, and I'm talking about playoff here. So okay. there's not a lot of other teams you can say that about because Washington themselves – it's almost like they're just kind of floating through these games, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. low margins, low expectation. Um, you know, they, they did fine against Utah. They did fine against Arizona state. Um, I think we know now that Auburn is not going to be that team. That's going to push Alabama or Georgia this year. They're going to be just a, just a rung below, which by the way is a great football team. Right. Totally. But I think that does affect national perception because they lost to Auburn in week one. So when you're talking about those teams that are right outside the conversation, um, it's you give Stanford the benefit of the doubt only because they haven't lost yet. Mm-hmm. And then we, you know, outside of the, the playoff six, the ACC, the bottom of the ACC has fallen out and the middle's fallen out. So I can't give you a dark horse there. It would have been fashionable a couple of weeks ago to pick a dark horse in the ACC. Um, it's getting really chalk right now, which I personally hate. I know, it's not as fun. What about, I'm sorry, cut you off. What about West Virginia? No, 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 the other team I was going to say is TCU, but you, you, we know now, I think emphatically, that they are not a playoff team because mm-hmm. the playoff team was able to, to, to handle them in all phases. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I don't have that much stock on them, but, but they do have a great quarterback and some scary receivers. What about West Virginia? Can they give Oklahoma? And Oklahoma hasn't looked that great lately. No, uh, I mean, look, I, I'm a, I know the Army program really well. I know all their coaches. Um, they, they, let me put it. Army wasn't looking around pinching each other in disbelief in the third and fourth quarter of that game. Mm-hmm. But they saw were individual matches that they could win. And just as an aside, uh, you talk about the disconnect between proven math and things that we know and things that we believe in this sport and mm-hmm. the, the dumb, ignorant expectations. If Arizona had hired Ken Yamasnoa, mm-hmm. where would they be right now? Mm-hmm. I think they'd be undefeated. With that really quarterback? Do. Oh, my God. That'd be amazing. They would do... They would do wonders with Khalil Tate. Mm-hmm. They they chase they chase the idea of Kevin Sumlin when I don't even think Kevin Sumlin's in a state to deliver that right now at Arizona, and it it just baffles me. Mm-hmm. Like all I wanted to talk about after Army Oklahoma was Arizona. What were you doing? The bias <laughs> against that system is so dumb mm-hmm. that you you really you you may have cost yourself four or five successful years. Wow, you really well, have. So Stephen, this is Eric Bradley again. I I feel an obligation since we're talking college football to talk about the team with the longest winning streak in the nation. 
um, UCF. And so I'm just wondering, let's imagine... I'm sorry, Harry, that's the the co-national champions. Exactly. I agree with you. I think they are. If you listen to Wharton Moneyball, you'll know that I agree that they are the co-national champions. If they, mm-hmm. Kate has always talked about, in some sense, it's important for those types of teams, like when Boise State did it in years past, to build their street credibility. If UCF goes undefeated again, so now they have, let's say, a 25-26 game winning streak, are they in the playoffs this year? This year? No. They're no. still not. No, I mean, hey, look, I'd get an American Athletic Conference tattoo if I could, if my wife would let me. Um, because because God bless them for existing, because they create unique dynamics and conversation points, and they allow us to look at what the precipice of high talent, uh, high coaching levels, and no money, and we get to experiment mm. with sort of the factors of what it takes to succeed in this in this sport, because oftentimes programs like UCF are so much better than other P5s, but you see where inherent bias, the budgets, the television revenue, you see where that truly has an effect. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think, the, and, and, you know, people are going to point and say, hey, well, they lost another P5 game because of the storm scheduling and all that. They were going to cream North Carolina. What mm-hmm. does that matter? Mm-hmm. I think there's, the bottom line is this. A four-team playoff structure is never going to let a G5 team in. Mm-hmm. I think it's a travesty. I think it's a joke. I think it's the number one reason, although most people in power don't care, I think it's the number one reason that they should expand to six or eight with an automatic bid for, for the team that wins the G5. If for nothing else, just line it up to where you have the number one seed play the G5 as the automatic. Mm-hmm. That's how you want to do it. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. love it. You got my vote. So, so we're going to have to let you go, but let me, let me say we need a campaign to, to snuff out this six thing before it gets very far at all, because six is crazy. You're giving teams buys through that first weekend, which is just not yeah, okay. That's really yeah, not okay. Not, I'll, let me clarify. Six won't happen because of the, um, the scheduling structure and the conferences won't agree with it. And like the four or five people in college football that still care about academics are going to point out that it's, <laughs> it's, it's too disconnected for finals. Okay. Um, Good. Like Good. Stanford would actually be worried, I guess. Right. Um, no, you'll see eight. All right. Well, we'll go you're with it. Hey, you're going to see whatever makes the most money. Seriously. Yeah, eight. clearly. That's the right. That's the right. That's the most parsimonious prediction for sure. All right. Listen, Stephen, we'll let you go. Really appreciate you taking the time to be with us this morning. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. That was Stephen Godfrey. Stephen is senior reporter at SB Nation. He's based out of Nashville. He co-hosts a great college football podcast called Podcast Ain't Played Nobody. Highly recommend it. You can follow Stephen on Twitter. His handle is at 38Godfrey. That is three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy and faculty colleague, Eric Bradlow. Adi Weiner was here for the first half of the show. He's in the classroom now. Shane Jensen out doing Shane Jensen things this morning. He'll be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation. Open lines in this last segment. Give us a shout. one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or you can email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or reach out on Twitter. We are at, at WMoneyBall. Handle up there is at WMoneyBall. Send us questions. Send us over-unders. We had a question about UCF, Central Florida, overnight, and I'm glad we had a chance to talk about that with our last guest, Stephen Godfrey talking about the difficult situation UCF is in, doesn't seem to have a way in to the playoff this year. Uh, good segment with our with our guy Godfrey. That He's a fantastic follow on college football. Interesting take on a few different corners of the college football world. This weekend, just to continue that conversation, we talked about that Ohio State-Penn State game. I think the line is Ohio State by three. Massey Peabody makes it more like one. We think that's almost a toss-up up there. 
Um, people around here are very fired up about that. Have you gone to a game there? I've never gone. I'm going to go one of these days. I've got to uh, go. Uh, yeah. So I'm married to a Penn Stater, okay. and so we have been to a game there, and it's a lot of fun to go to Penn State games, and um, it's just the visual of it, too, because, you know, um, a part of it's just the blue and white colors, and okay. so you go there, and it's all blue and white. Okay. And so, um, and matter of fact, they showed something on ESPN yesterday morning, which was surprising to me, so not to you, maybe, who went to a big school, but I mean, I went here to Penn. You just walk into the game five minutes before, right. um, there were people in tents out there since Monday for the Saturday games. <laughs> no. These are people that are going to live in tents. No. To, yes. Why? Uh, it must be well, queuing advantage? up. Yeah, there must be Jeez. queuing up for better seats or well, something they, like that. And they, as a matter of fact, I imagine they don't have an infinite number of seats to give to the students. I yeah, mean, this is a stu- these are students. So Duke basketball has the same kind of camping out kind of thing. All right, so that's the that's the game of the year so far. It's going to end up being one of the big games of the year, even at the end of the season. The other big game this weekend, there's a second big game, and that's Notre Dame hosting Stanford. We're going to find out whether Stanford's real. That's another conversation we just had with Godfrey, speculation on whether Stanford's real. The line there... Gosh, what is the line? We've got it here in front of us somewhere. Do you have a line there, Matty D? Massey Peabody makes it seven. We don't yet believe in Stanford. We think Notre Dame's pretty legit, nine or ten in the country. We think Stanford's more like twenty, twenty-five. So the game the 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 official line is five and a half. So we're a little bit longer on Notre Dame than the betting line. Well the thing that's the reason why it's also such a high pressure game, obviously for Stanford, but if Notre Dame wants to make the playoffs they don't. Ha- I mean, this is an important game for them in the sense that they don't have a ton of teams. They're not playing. Go back to what Stephen Godfrey said. They're not in the SEC West, so they don't have. Well, we got an opportunity against Georgia and Alabama. They yeah. don't have an opportunity against any no, of those teams. They, they, they're, they, and the upside of that is they have a good chance of running the table. If no, they, no. If, they clear if you Stanford, wanted to optimally design your schedule, you would design it against. Let's play three or four teams that people think are kind of good that give us some legitimacy, and then let's play the other seven or eight right. games against teams we know we're going to beat. Oh, wow. we beat Michigan. We beat Stanford. Look, none of those teams are top four or five teams, but it it gives you in some sense. You beat a bunch of ten to twenties. And apparently, that equals beating somebody real good. Well, the Michigan, we actually believe in Michigan. I think Michigan's kind of sneaky good. Um, they fell off a little bit the radar when they lost that game, that early game to, to Notre Dame. But they could still get in. A one-loss team can totally do this thing. And especially in the Big Ten, where if, you, you're, you, if you're going to make it through, you're going to have to knock out people like Penn State and Ohio State. Well, I assume State. they play Penn State. Yeah. Do they play Penn State and yeah. Ohio State? Yeah, yeah. Oh, they're, well, they're the same division. You beat Penn State and Ohio State and then go to Wisconsin. Let's say they beat the Big Ten West champion, whatever. You're going. They, they go undefeated well, the rest of the way. They're going. Also, they have Michigan State. So we talk about the okay. SEC West being a tough division, but the Big Ten East is arguably as tough. They've got some real garbage at the bottom, but they've got some incredible... You know what's, of course, interesting? I know it's not a massive asymmetry, but we talked about, could a one-loss LSU team go? And we're like, no, not sure. But we're already putting a one-loss Michigan team. Like, that team will go. You know, it's... it's Right? It's not. It's. I disagree with Stephen a little bit on whether a one-loss LSU team would be considered, but but I don't think they're going to be a one-loss LSU team. Michigan... Fair enough. It's going to be hard to do, but I think Michigan's a better team. He's more worried about also schedule. the transitivity where, let's pretend LSU beats Georgia at home, and then Georgia beats Alabama, Though then you're going to take Georgia and Alabama. Yeah. So he's also looking at that little yeah, circle. That's right. That's right. So other games, real quickly, um, West Virginia is undefeated. People wonder whether they can do it in the Big 12 against Oklahoma. They're visiting Texas Tech, which looks to be more legitimate than usual. Usually this time of year with Tech, they've blown out some nobody teams. 
People in West Texas are fired up, but they're not any good, and they lose most of the rest of their games. That's not going to be the case this year, and that game is almost a push. We make Tech a two-point favorite, actually. And then you've got a very intriguing matchup in the SEC. You've got Florida with the former Mississippi State head coach, Dan Mullen, returning to Mississippi State. So a very interesting game down there between um, kind of the second-tier teams in the SEC. There's no doubt I'll be watching a lot of college football on Saturday. Though, well, in my case, I mean, I think you can guarantee the Ohio State-Penn State game will be on in my household. So th- the other thing going on this coming weekend is is the Ryder Cup, right? I mean, this is like a big deal, and it's it just kind of snuck up on me. Yeah, the Ryder Cup is this weekend. And so a couple things about the, the golf schedule, which one could argue is questionable. So the world golf championship just was this last weekend. We, all, we discussed it in the first half hour. Tiger Woods won. The Ryder Cup is in France five days later. Now, I I, I, I don't want to say that's good or bad, but I mean, so they're in Atlanta on Sunday. Then they jet overnight. They couldn't have given them a week off for the Ryder Cup. It's surprising to me, really surprising. Not only that, but let's remember, Tiger Woods is one of the players. He's played four consecutive weeks. Remember, there's the week of the top 125, then the week of the top 100, then the week of the top 70, then the week of the top 30. So this is his fifth consecutive week well, playing R- golf. R- Rory was in the final two with him. So Rory's in, on the other side of the Ryder Cup and in the exact same situation. But there were a bunch of players that I'm looking at on the British, on the uh, Europe side that weren't in the top 30. Yeah, yeah. They've been over there practicing on the course. Matter of fact, I'll use your Hawaii scenario that you talked about earlier in the show. We got guys that are traveling 3,500 miles with four days rest, and we have a half a dozen other players that weren't there. Look, matter of fact, I, I, I can list most of the European squad. Justin Rose was there. I don't remember if any of these other European... Molinari okay, but, but, was there. But, Eric, get what you're saying. You're saying the other side of what you're saying is they weren't good enough to be playing in the top 30. Well, that's why the U.S. is favored. That's why the U.S. is favored. The other thing you look at is... What, what's the, what are the odds, by it's, the way? Uh, U.S. is minus 130, I believe. Okay. Which isn't huge. You know, that's not a huge no. favorite. The thing that, that struck me, and maybe Matt can put it up on the screen for you, is here's what I know factually. Nine of the 12... U.S. players on the team have won major championships, nine of the 12. The only ones that haven't are one of the hottest golfers in the world, Bryson DeChambeau. Surprisingly, Ricky Fowler has actually yeah. never won a major, but like, he is one of those. Yeah. And a guy who's under the radar who just wins, gets top 10 every tournament is Tony Finau. Okay. So, but here are the others. Dustin Johnson, he's a pretty good player, right? Number one in the world or number two. Mm-hmm. Brooks Kepka, the guy that won two majors this year. Phil Mickelson, he's got a few majors. Patrick Reed, Webb Simpson, Jordan Spieth, he's decent, right? Justin Thomas, Bubba Watson. That's and then, of course, we now have team. the 14-time major winner who's hot, <laughs> Tiger Woods. And let me just say, let's remember, the last two rounds, you could call it match play or not, on Saturday... Tiger Woods defeated Justin Rose, the number one player in the world, by three strokes. And then on Sunday, he defeated Rory McIlroy by three strokes. You're telling me that didn't build Tiger confidence? (laughs) He played against one-on-one Justin Rose and one-on-one Rory McIlroy on Saturday and Sunday just three days ago. Mm -hmm. That has to build confidence. Mm -hmm. Is there any athlete in the world that you plug more often than you plug Tiger Woods? 
Uh, probably not. <laughs> probably not. Although I probably talk about the big four in tennis as much as I talk it combined. Yeah, combined, to talk about combined, combined, combined to talk about Tiger Woods. So, what's the story with Bubba Watson? He's like one of these names is not like the other on that list to me. He hasn't been prominent lately. How did, was he a captain's pick, or he's like number ten in the qualifying? Or? Yeah, no, he he qualified at the he, end, at he, the bottom qual- of the yeah, list. Yeah, he was in the bottom of the top of the list. What's his world ranking right now? It's not that high. I don't know exactly. I'll have to look it up and see where it is. But it, what's his history in the Ryder Cup? You name some of those people, like like Pat, Patrick Patrick Reed and Patrick and, Reed. Well, and Patrick Kopka, Re- these guys have some nice recent Ryder Cup history. They're known yeah. as competitors. Yes, they do. Uh, I think Bubba Watson. I think I looked at his record recently. He's a good but not great Ryder Cup player. Now I'm sure you know the numbers. Uh, Tiger Woods has a losing record in the Ryder Cup. But that's because of the four ball and the alternate shot matches. Uh, Phil Mickelson has a losing record in the Ryder Cup as well. But Tiger Woods, for example, hasn't been defeated in singles in the Ryder Cup in 20 years. Like in the singles match... He's, he lost his first Ryder Cup match ever in singles and has gone 4-0-2 since. So tell me, Eric, we always preach sample size. Yep. Do you think we overreact to people's Ryder Cup histories? Because these are small sample things. Except in situations where at this point, you know, I think Phil Mickelson's playing, I don't know, his 10th, 11th, 12th straight Ryder Cup. He's got like 50 matches in the Ryder Cup, and he's got a losing record. So that's not that tiny a sample size. Tiger Woods has probably played 40 matches in the Ryder Cup, mm-hmm. so we don't have that tiny a sample size. But, but like yes, you said, the majority of those are going to be with a playing partner. Correct. Yeah, so we we're, the whole conversation is predicated that there is this individual difference. Some guys are better cut for the Ryder Cup. Is that really a thing or not? We don't have the data to say, but it's a great story. And it feels that way because you have the Patrick Reeds and Stan Kupkas that feel that way. I think there are players that like the put the following. I think there are players that like match play. It tends to favor, let's think about who that favors. It tends to favor the people that are super aggressive, right? Because I hate to put it this way. Losing a hole by one and losing a hole by seven doesn't matter. It's hole by hole. It's not score play. It's match play, which means guys that make a lot of birdies are favored in this type of situation. And so I think it does. It's totally different than stroke play. You know, you're kind of constant plotter, guys that shoot, you know, just birdie after birdie after birdie. It's not worth a lot in Ryder Cup. you Mm got to make birdies. you got to win holes. Win holes. So in the end... Who do you think is going to take this thing? You've got a better team, individual players, but Europe, these guys have been in Europe. They've been the U.S. has lost five straight war, uh, uh, Ryder Cups in Europe. We haven't won one since 1993 on European soil. Ooh, wow. So it's been a long time. Um, I'm going with the U.S. team. You are. I think there's just way, way too much talent on the U.S. team, um, and we'll see what happens. And I'm fascinated. You know, of course, the part I'm most fascinated about is who does – uh, who does uh, who do they put together yeah. to, to for the Jim Furyk's the captain? Who yeah. does Jim Furyk put together yeah. as the playing partners? Because that's the part that intrigues me the most. And also, who plays? Because as you may know, in each of the brackets, like they play four four ball matches, for, which means four players sit in each time. How much are we going to see Tiger Woods out there? Like, given he's hot, are we going to see him in all five matches? Probably yeah. not. How much are we going to see Mickelson out there? How much are you going to see Jordan Spieth out there? Yeah. So, like, how, who sits? Who sits? When you've got, got, got the that's all-star deep, team, that's tough. who's going to sit? That's right, right. Okay, but so I like the U.S. Just to make it interesting, I'll take the other side on, as we do a couple of over-unders here before we roll into the, our, our football games. Another football-related over-under. 
Number of SEC teams in the playoff. Matt sets the over-under at one and a half. We've got Bama, Georgia, LSU, Auburn, all top ten teams. How many will make the playoff, Eric? Well, I'm going to go under. And I'm going to go under because um, I think what's going to happen is I think Clemson's looking really strong from the ACC. So I think they're likely to go. Obviously, I think one SEC team is going to go. Um, I think one Big Ten team is going to go. And I think it's likely. I think I'm betting on a Big 12 team going. So that's why I'm saying I don't think it's mainly because of the Big 12. I don't think a Pac-12 is a Pac-12 now. I don't think a Pac-12, Pac-10, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I don't think one of them is going to go. So I'm. I don't. Th- that's my guess. I'm going. No, I, because I think a Big 12 team will go. Although I'm staring at the screen, and I see the Massey Peabody numbers have that in equal odds. I'm basically right on the knife edge yeah, of where Massey Peabody has yeah, it. Matt, Matt picked the right number. We we would put it at just below 1.5, but it feels like more than that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take the other side. I'm gonna say yeah, some, they're gonna figure out a way to get both Alabama and Georgia in there, um, even though the. But and let me say the following. Would you agree with the following statement? The if all else is equal. They would prefer not doing that. Yeah, and that's yes. why I'm saying I don't think, because I think Georgia would need an over, let's say the Georgia-Alabama loser, they would need an overwhelming, now Alabama would have it. Matter of fact, the best chance of it, which I'm sure Massey Peabody shows, if Georgia beats Alabama, and, that raises the likelihood yeah. tremendously. If Alabama beats Georgia, they're going to have to search for reasons, in my view, to put Georgia in over, whether it's an Oklahoma or... You mean Alabama in over? No, no. If Alabama beats if Georgia, Alabama Georgia. Yeah, yeah. then Georgia, I think, is a much less likely yep. second team than, obviously, if Georgia beats Alabama. Eric, you're asking about the committee's preferences for how they how they slot this thing. And I think what we've learned over the last few years is that they're willing to flout the geographic representation or the conference distribution. They're, wi- they're more willing than we thought they were going to be when they first came up with the system to, to slot the top four teams. It's, it's kind of surprising. And so... That leaves me saying, hey, look, that's why I think Georgia and Alabama are going to figure out a way to get in here because they're just head and shoulders above everybody else right now. All right, we're going to keep moving. One other over-under from the NFL. We have, uh, well, I'll give you two. The Chiefs and Rams. The the seed, the playoff seeds that the Chiefs and Rams earn this year, over-under set at one and a half for both of them. Wow, that's a tough one. Let me take the one that I think is easier for me to do. I think the Rams will be the one seed in the NFC. So I'm going to go, I guess, under. I'm going to go under one and a half. Boy, I've seen this Chiefs song before. I saw the 5-0 and Chiefs last year who were the best team in football and everyone, you know, and I think, I forget if they were 10-6 and or 11-5. and It wasn't clear they were going to make the playoffs until the last game or two. Um, I will go over for the Chiefs, and I will go under for the Rams. Okay. That's what I'm going. Okay. So I'll give you a, a quick thought. Right now, I'm just going to give you a chart off of Massey Peabody. Chart has Kansas City as the most wins projected in the AFC. So I'll go over. I'll go under. You're using the term technically correct. I'm going to say, yeah, they're going to earn that number one seed. And I'm going to say that the Rams are too. And I'm more confident. I'm more confident in the Rams. We have them more than a game and a half ahead of the next highest projected team in the NFC. Yeah, as I said, I took the easiest one first for me. I said, I think the Rams are the under, and I. but for me, I'm taking the Chiefs as the over. All right, so this is the time of the show when we look at the rest of the NFL slate. Moneyball matchups. 
All right, Eric, what do you got? I'm going to go. I'm not, by the way, for your fans saying, all right, Eric's obviously going to pick the Buccaneers at Bears. No, I'm not picking that game, despite of the fact that it is an important game between two two and one teams. I am picking the Thursday night game, which is fascinating to me, which is the Vikings at the Rams. And so I'm really, despite the Vikings got, you know, really bad. We talked about the game before. They lost to Buffalo. I'm really interested to see how good that Rams team is. Um, I could see up. I see the Rams are favored by six and a half. I'm just fascinated by that game. Um, I don't know. I think it could be a highly competitive game. I think the Vikings were embarrassed by their play in the last game. I think the Vikings have a good defensive team. So the game that I think the Rams win the game, but I think it's going to be a very close game. But I'm very interested in that Thursday night game. Look, if they win that game and they let's say they blow out the Vikings in some way, which is possible as well. I mean. Who's going to really challenge them in the NFC? I mean, they're, that's a, that's the game that caught my eye. I've got two others, but that's the first one that caught my eye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, where do uh, you guys have that game? We we have the Rams as the best team in the league, and um, but we still like Minnesota. They dropped a lot this week, but we have you know middle of the league or something like that. So, on a neutral field, we'd make it about a five point game. Um, of course, the Rams are hosting, so we're going to make it more like a seven, seven and, a half, and eight. a half or so. And it's so, got a six and a half. Yeah, so we're close to the line, but we like the Rams by a tad more. So I, I just find that game fascinating. And the other one that caught my eye, of course, is, I mean, I hate to say any game's a do-or-die game, but Dolphins at Patriots. That, I, I agree. That's interesting. I mean, if the pa- let's just do the math. If the Patriots lose that game, they're one and three. The Dolphins would be 4-0 with a road win against the Patriots. So you could call that a three-and-a-half game lead if you'd like. Well, I don't know about you, but let's forget history or anything. If you have a three-and-a-half game lead with 12 games to play, yeah, yeah, right. I'm favoring the three-and-a-half game lead team with 12 games to play. Yeah. I think if the Patriots want a top seed in the in the uh, AFC, they have to win this game against the Dolphins. Yeah, they have to. They have to, they have to wake up or it's not going to happen. We're just not accustomed to them being in this position, but they can't keep on losing games. Right now we have the, the Pats and the Dolphins projected for the exact same schedule. So this turns out to be a really important game for the, for the AFC East. Yeah, so that game, of course, caught my eye as well. So a couple How more. How about for you? A couple more that are interesting. I mean, I th- I, that, that was the one I was going to name, but also I want to see Mayfield again. So Cleveland goes out to Oakland. I love pulling against John Gruden. So anybody playing John Gruden, I'm going to be pulling for, even if it's a former Oklahoma Sooner quarterback. So let's watch Mayfield, see what happens out there. Well, how soon do you hear? Maybe it's already hearing it. How soon do you hear the Oakland fans grumbling against? I'm pretty sure they're 0-3, right? And a couple of games they were leading, like big, going into the second half. My biggest prediction going in and my biggest pleasure going in is that this is going to blow up spectacularly. But the game of the week for me, for sure, is Ravens-Steelers Sunday night. Um, with the big division rival, this has long been one of the best rivals in the in the game. We have we're much bigger on the Ravens than I kind of expected us to be. We have the Ravens as the fourth best team in the in the league, but we have Pittsburgh as the third best team. So this would be a push on a neutral field. So we're going to give the Steelers a, a, an advantage coming in, but and that's where the odds are right on top of the line. Yeah, it's interesting. That is a game I picked as well. Um, I just saw the Steelers play, and um, I will say the following. And now, of course, you could say it's if the Buccaneers don't throw four balls directly into the hands of the Steelers, the Buccaneers were the better team in that game. So I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. I'm taking the Ravens in that game. <laughs> All right. Go Baltimore. All right, guys. That has been another Wharton Moneyball. We do this every Wednesday. Thanks to, uh, to you guys for listening. But thanks from the host, for Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, 
Shane Jensen, this has been Cade Massey. Many thanks to our producer and boss man, Matty Detz, and to Danielle Bruno, sound engineer, running the show. Always appreciate it. You guys enjoy your week of sports. Come back and join us next time. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.